0: Welcome to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. I'm glad that you're joining us this week. Today, we're going to do something a bit different. I am going to be gone next week, so I'm going to record two uh, podcasts in one. In other words, this will be uh, longer podcasts than usual, but we will not do one next week. And I'm going to get into a new area. As you have noticed, if you've been keeping up with our podcast since we started about four or five months ago, I don't know how long we've been doing it. But um, primarily, I've been dealing with the subject of salvation really exclusively. We covered the seven essentials of salvation. We uh, covered the subject of child salvation and true and false conversion. And then I did a lesson last week on uh, how does salvation work. And then besides that, we've had quite a few of our own members from the church here give testimony and I had my son and his wife on to discuss their mission work in Scotland. But today I'm going to move into some more Bible study and and get into an area that I have to say right up front is very controversial, and there's been a lot of debate over this issue for a long time in Christian circles and among churches. And so I've got to weigh in on this debate. I think any Christian, especially in the English-speaking world here in America especially, and other places that use the English Bible, has uh, hopefully uh, decided where they stand on this issue. I think every Christian should, and, and it's important. This is not a peripheral, uh, you know, non-issue. Uh, this isn't something we can just say that's you know, we don't need to, to deal with. Um, I know there's always uh, going to be subjects that everyone has their opinion on how important they are and, or not, uh, I do understand the uh, the idea of secondary importance to certain biblical uh, uh, truths or principles uh, and that doctrine, surely some doctrine, is more important than others. I would agree with that statement. But um, when we come to the subject of the Bible itself, uh, the subject of bibliology, uh, there can really be nothing more important because... When you think of the whole revelation of God to us, how do we know anything about God? How, how can we ever come to know Christ? How can we be saved? Uh, how do we know how to live? What do we know about our past? How do we know about our future? All these great subjects, without God's written revelation to us called the Bible, we would be lost. We would have no idea about any of these things. And so, bibliology often in, in seminaries and in Bible institutes is actually taught first even before theology. Now, that doesn't mean it's more important in theology. It simply means that without a good foundation in bibliology or the, the doctrine of the Bible, how we got the Bible, what's the importance of the Bible— things about the scriptures, uh, things about inspiration and preservation and inerrancy and sufficiency and and all these great subjects that are taught under the umbrella of bibliology. Without that, uh, really no other doctrine could be established. You'd have no standard by which to establish any other uh, doctrine of the Christian faith. And today I want to look into a particular area of Bibliology. We're not going to look at it in its in its whole extent. We're not going to go into, you know, uh, things about the Bible itself uh, uh, as far as its contents. And, and I've done a little bit of that already in, in a few of the uh, teachings already when we did the seven essentials. We talked about Revelation, if you'll remember the second essential. Uh, but today I want to get into Something that, as I said, has been very controversial and debated, and I have some strong opinions on it. I think every preacher, every pastor uh, that's studied and and, and wants to be uh, truthful and and wants to uh, preach sound doctrine and wants to have the right position where they stand on issues, uh, definitely is going to have an opinion on this one. And that is the whole modern uh, translation uh, controversy. Uh, what modern version or what version of the Bible do we use, not only individually in our personal life, but uh, in the church. And uh, most of you uh, are aware, and if you're not, this may be brand new to you. And, and, and if you haven't ever heard about this debate, I think it's good you're listening because you need to be aware of the different positions out there. Now, um, I want to stay state up front that Myself personally and the church I pastor, uh, Arlington Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas, uh, we use the King James Version of the Bible, all also known as the Authorized Version. I think that's just as valid a title for the version that we use. Uh, and we have some strong reasons why. Um, but I, I want to state some things up front. There, There's a lot of... Um, I think harshness and, and division being caused by the uh, Bible version issue that does not need to happen and should not happen. Um, I would say up front that anytime I'm uh, dealing with uh, a sinner who needs to be saved, anybody, anytime I'm talking to someone who's not a Christian, who's outside of the family of God, Um, I don't get into this debate with them at all. If they ask me, I will tell them I use one version, that I have a standard that I use for the Bible, but I don't get into the controversy. I don't tell them, hey, that there's different uh, denominations and groups that use different versions and there's a lot of arguing and and a lot of name-calling and all that over it. Of course, I wouldn't even say those things. I don't want the unsaved to think that we as Christians... Uh, are always arguing and we can't get along and that we don't love each other and and so on. And so having said that, I think on one side, dealing with unsaved people, we should never even get into this controversy. It's not necessary, okay? Uh, They need salvation. They don't need to get into the ins and outs of particular uh, doctrines that... that, really wouldn't, they wouldn't understand anyway. But having said that, going on to when we're dealing with a church setting and and talking to other Christians, we can have an in-house debate. We can have an in-family debate. And I think it's healthy if we keep certain parameters, certain boundaries in mind. And that is, I don't believe we should ever be argumentative. I don't think we ever ought to uh, accuse others of of, you know, wicked and devilish, satanic intentions and, and, and conspiracies behind what we uh, believe about this issue uh, of, of the Bible versions of today, and, and our modern English version especially. Um, I, I think that is, is not only hurtful uh, to the cause of Christ, I think it's divisive, and I don't agree with it. And, and I have many, many uh, people that I know, I respect, people I've met, I've even worked with. Uh, in ministry outside of a, a church setting that use modern versions, do not use the authorized or King James Version, and I love them in the Lord. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to say up front that I would totally disagree with anyone who comes at this issue with a Bible version question with a chip on their shoulder and, and wants to make it a an area of, of uh, you know, uh, heresy and, and so on. Um I I recently uh, did a updated study in the last few years. I I have to tell you right up front, just so you know my background, I was saved in a church that used the King James, and of course I was taught why we used it, And, and I have to admit I come from that tradition, and so that is my background. But I don't ever want pride uh, that that often sets in because of traditional beliefs or practices. I don't want pride in, in, in just the way it's always been done to be my reason for for using and staying with the King James. So a few years ago, uh, I was sparked to uh, move into and, and to re-investigate the whole modern version uh, controversy. And uh, did some updated reading and and viewing. I I watched a a series of YouTube videos uh, that were put out. They're quite dated, but they still were, I think, very... Appropriate to the whole uh, controversy and, and whole debate, uh, called John Ankerberg. If you if you get on YouTube and look up John Ankerberg, he has a two and a half hour debate where he has on there uh, representatives from the King James only position, as they call it, and those from the modern versions who propose and use those, and those many of them are translators and and. Uh, men who worked on the modern versions and and it's and it's a good program it's i think it's five half-hour segments and uh, even though i wouldn't say i agree with everything that was put on the program i think it was a a good representation and there's many things you can learn from it i sadly think that the people he had on representing the king james were very inept and uh incapable and, and unable to i think voice the king james position in the right way Uh, But anyway, not only that, but I also uh, got done reading, and I read it years ago, but I wanted to reread it for uh, just uh, remembrance and clarity, the uh, very uh, well-known book put out by those who proposed the new versions uh, by a guy named James White. Most people know James White, and he wrote a book called The King James Only Controversy. And I've not always been a big fan of James White I have some still some strong disagreements with his doctrine in some areas uh that'll be for another program but he was on that program with Ankerbergen and, and his book is helpful and uh, after reading it and going through that uh uh program by John ackerberg on YouTube and then kind of revisiting some of my old notes and and uh things that I had put in files over this subject uh I kind of re uh reinvestigated and reworked some of my beliefs. I put them in written form to give out, and I've told them to our church. I preached in a message a while back, kind of a, a summary or an update on the King James controversy. I think that was the title of the message uh, that was put out on our website. We put everything on Facebook and uh, through our Facebook live stream and through our website. But anyway, going back to my uh, recent study, I came to some conclusions and I want to kind of share those with you. Now, I'm going to give you my the uh, short answer to where I stand and then try to describe it. And this this podcast today, which I told you will probably be about an hour in length, uh, will not be the final one on this subject. In fact, I may not even be able to cover everything I want to say right now in a one-hour podcast, so we may be coming back next time, which will be in a few weeks, to uh, to uh, look at this subject again. But even if I summarize what i want to today i will tell you that we will visit this subject again it's just too important to just cover even in a one hour uh podcast but um and that by the way i could just add that's true with any subject that we'll try to bring up Uh, we've covered salvation quite a bit already but that doesn't mean we'll never bring it up again so please understand when we do a 30 minute or even a double podcast like an hour today we're going to do we'll still come back to subjects because. They're just so important. You can't ever exhaust them in in, in one sermon, one podcast, uh, whatever. So back to the King James uh, position now. Uh, in uh, James White's book and on the, uh, the John Agerberg YouTube program, um, they use this title, which I want to talk about for a moment, in, in calling it King James Onlyism or the King James Only Controversy. I've never liked that title and I, I never have been wanted to be I wanted to have myself pigeonholed or stuck in some uh, stereotype that people like to make uh, and I want to say right up front that I am not a King James only person if you define that a certain way I like and respect that that James White in the beginning of his book uh, I think he stated that there's five levels of King James onlyism and I appreciate that he did this. Uh, I would say right up front that I would not be a King James only person if that means, for instance, one who believes in in double inspiration. Uh, what, if you don't know what that means, there's some people who use the King James or Authorized Version who have come to a position called double inspiration, where they believe that when the King James translators translated our King James Bible first from 1604 to 1611. They believe that the work those men did was really inspired by God in the exact same way the original autographs, the original writings of the 66 books were. I denounce that position and do not hold that. I think that is an heretical position. And so I don't want to be lumped in with people like Peter Ruckman and others who made that popular uh, because I think it's wrong. Uh, We didn't need double inspiration. Uh, because God promised to preserve uh, the inspired text, and we'll get into preservation a little bit later. But uh, back to—I'm not a King James only person uh, who's in that camp. Okay, um, I, I'm not also one of these that's in the camp of the conspiratorial theorist uh, who believe that all the modern version uh, versions of the Bible and and their editors and and their contributors are satanic, and we're working out a diabolical plot to undermine Christianity. There was a book uh, that was very popular when it came back. It came out in the, I think it was in the 90s, uh, called New Age Bible Versions by a woman named Gail Ripplinger. And when it first came out, man, this is way back, and I told you I was from a King James position. So I will have to say that I, I was enamored at the book at first, but the longer I read it and the longer I began to see other rebuttals of the book the more i came to disagree with mrs ripplinger because though i would say some of the things she has in there are true i don't say everything she wrote is false there are there were some concerns that she voices in that book that i voice and i'll i'll tell you about those but I do not agree with Mrs. Ripplinger's conspiratorial position that, you know, uh, guys on the NIV or the NASB or many of the other new new versions uh, were uh, either unsaved, satanically led conspira- conspiracy people who were uh, kind of uniting together in a grand plot to to undermine the Christian faith. First of all, uh, the Christian faith is is kept... Uh, going by God, not by man, and it'll and Jesus said the gates of hell shall never prevail against His church. So uh, I don't believe that would ever happen. So anyway, I don't want to be included in that uh, branch of King James onlyism either. Um, If someone calls me a King James-only person, if they mean by that, I use the King James as my standard in the English language in reading and preaching and use it as as the standard to create unity in our church, then yes, I would consider myself a King James-only person. I do believe it is the best English version to use. And even after my extensive study, kind of a re-study, a re-examination recently, uh, I I still have not been persuaded by the evidence on the other side to abandon the King James, uh, the authorized version, as my uh, standard uh, in the English language. I do... I still use it. I preach from it on a weekly basis, teach from it each time our church meets, and we'll get into into reasons for that. Now, I just want to, again, stay on this theme. This is kind of all introduction. We haven't really got into the meat of some of the arguments that that I'll try to get into. But um, uh, as I said, I I don't disagree with people that use modern versions. Um, they're, They're good people. Some of my favorite preachers, people that I read, people whose commentaries I use, uh, are coming from a new version uh, or modern version uh, point of view. And so they're not my enemies. I love and respect these people. Uh, many of my favorite uh, writers, uh, when their books come out, they're written with a basis in another version. Uh, you know, there's several very popular uh, modern versions you're aware of, I'm sure, the English Standard or ESV, uh, the New... Uh, new uh, the uh, new. Uh, American Standard Bible, which has had a couple of reprints, is a very popular one. The New International Version, the NIV, has always had a lot of popularity. And then, of course, the New King James, the NKJV, as they call it, is very popular. And there's many, many others. Uh, and again, these are not bad people. And in that program from John Ankerberg that I watched, I had great respect for for these editors and these, these proponents of these other versions. And I'm sure as we, if we sat in a room together, we would get along very well. Uh, many of the doctrines that, that I hold, they would hold to, And so we would not be enemies, and we're in the same family. I believe all those men that were on that program were saved men. I have no doubt by hearing their testimony and what they believe about the Word of God, that we would uh, we 'd have some unity there in the family of God um, and, and and I tell people again from uh, an argument of apologetics or people who would try to undermine the Bible by uh, all the various versions that is an argument that atheists and and skeptics are using from my own uh, experience of of doing uh, uh, college ministry and and doing uh, what I call cold outreach and visiting and Uh, on our uta campus here nearby we've talked to a lot of young people try to present the gospel and i've heard many arguments used about all the versions it'll go something like this they'll say well you christians don't even know what you believe because you have so many versions of the bible which one's which one's the true one how do you know which one to follow and and that is a valid argument and and i'll kind of use that that argument later in making some other points I don't want to get bogged down on it right now. But only to say this, when I answer an unsaved person, a skeptic who says that, I will say, listen, friend, uh, you probably haven't studied this issue well enough to get in, into it deeply, but I can tell you that the amount of differences between the King James authorized version and the text it comes from, we'll get into all that a little bit later, uh, and the modern versions and the text that they came from or were translated from, there's very little difference, less than 2% variation between what you find in the King James and its underlying text in the Hebrew and the Greek versus the modern versions and their text in the Hebrew and the Greek, less than two percent. Now that two percent has some impact and we'll talk about that later. I'm not going to just kind of give up and say that two percent aren't valid, but I make this point and, and I'm glad that they made it on the YouTube program from John Agerberg. They said, you know no major doctrine, is ever compromised or changed by the small variations between the authorized version and all the modern versions in English today. And I think that's a good point, and I do agree with it. Now, I I, I will tell you that I have some very deep concerns about the 2% changes, and we'll look at some of those very controversial debated passages or verses later, but just at the onset, I want to tell you, this is why I don't think it's right to view people who use modern versions, other than the authorized version, as uh, heretics, as, as anti-Christian uh, enemies of the cross and so on. No, I don't view that them at all that way. And so I want to make that clear up front. I have great respect for many people who use modern versions. And if they're truly been converted through Jesus Christ and are in the family of God, they're my brother or sister, and we can love each other, and we can have a lot of unity, and and I know we do in some areas. Now, having said that now, that's kind of all the disclaimer section of the podcast on the King James controversy. I do want to get into some some areas of of leaning or, or leading towards why, as I've told you, I've decided to stay with the King James even after some reexamination of the of the main issues, and and that'll take some time. Whether we get it done today or we pick it up again in another broadcast in a few weeks, um, I wrote a couple of different. Um, brief studies. This is a big study by the way. If you've never got into this study of the modern versions uh and the versus the King James and the whole uh, English version question that's out there. Uh, this is a big subject and as I said I could I could probably literally take 10 or 15 podcasts in the next couple of months and to get into it in, in detail and, and and it deserves that detail and I'll get into some detail with you and we'll come back to it. Uh, as time goes on, if we need to, but I want to at least cover some of the big things. And what I've done is, is write some short little papers with enough depth to get people at least introduced to the subject. And so some of these things I'm going to say as a preliminary uh, start here to, to just begin, preliminary points. They're not going to be are my main points. They're not going to be all we're going to talk about. So please understand that. I'll, I'll tell you when we're going to get into some of the major, you know, point by point, by point conclusions that that I've drawn myself, and that I would challenge you uh, to do this study that you can come to your own conclusions. Hey, uh, we don't believe in mind control, and we don't believe in checking your brain at the door. As Christians and in a church like I pastor, uh, we want people to come to their own conclusions. I love what the Bible says where Paul writes, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. Uh, We believe in soul liberty. Every Christian has a right to look at the Bible themselves, look at the evidence, come to their own conclusions. Of course, we're going to influence each other. You know, iron sharpeneth iron, the, the proverb says. And so I've learned from a lot of other people. Believe me, these aren't new ideas I came up with. Believe me, things I'm going to go into uh, now and in future podcasts about the King James issue, I studied a long time over and, and had to really mull over and digest and come to my own conclusions. And, and uh, so that's what I'm going to give you, what, what, I've, what I've come to. Uh, so some of those preliminary points. I want to start by saying God only gave one version of the Bible originally, now, that might seem like an elementary kind of point. Yeah, of course, duh. Yeah, that's true. But, but that, that starts a, a thinking process that I want to maintain throughout this discussion. And that is, if God only gave one version, uh, one, and we call those the autographs, you know what the word inspiration means, I hope. If you don't, let me explain quickly. The, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable. And then it goes on in that verse. But that phrase, inspiration, theosnustos, it means God breathed. God breathed through the Spirit of God. God told the writers of the 66 books that make up our, our Bible, told them exactly what to write. And so inspiration is an important, important part of bibliology. Now, when God inspired the writers, he did not inspire them to give us several different versions of those original autographs, as we're going to call them. Remember, manuscripts are copies. Autographs are the original, okay? So, I want you to keep that in mind, because as we look at the issue of the modern English versions, which, of course, are translations from the original languages, Hebrew, mostly Hebrew in the Old Testament, a little bit of Aramaic, but let's just, for the sake of our uh, wording here, say Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, um, we know that, that the version God gave was in the autographs was one. There was only one. There wasn't any choices. There wasn't where you can say, well, I didn't like the way Moses wrote that. I, it's hard to understand. Isn't there another way to say that, Moses? Couldn't you have, or, or David, or Paul, or John, or whoever the writers were. There's some 40 different human writers, as you know, that wrote over a period of 1,600 years to give us the entire Bible in its 66 parts, but it was all one version at first. So I say that to say this, if God only gave one original autograph, one way, do you think he's pleased with over 200? I don't know what the number is now. I haven't even done a, you know, Google search to tell you this, but at one time, and it's got to be more than that now. There were over 200 English versions of the Bible. Now, I have to tell you, even modern conservative proponents or supporters of the modern versions, like on the Ankerberg program I was telling about, they don't even agree with that. They even disagree with many of what they would call perversions, which are things like paraphrases, the living Bible, the message, that aren't even claiming to be real translations. They're more interpretations uh, of what the... uh, Right, or what the, uh, the publisher or, or the, uh, the, the Bible uh, group or person or, or committee wants you to think God was saying, okay? So here's the point. If there was one version originally, I hate to use the word version. Let's just say autograph. There's one writing, one inspir- inspired book. Why do we think God would want there to be all the various choices there are today? Um, that, that's a point that always has struck me right from the onset. Now, I have to tell you that the differences in the versions are not simply cosmetic. Um, I know that the modern versions, like the NIV, the NASB, even the NKJV, the New King James, uh, have been sold under the publicity or advertisement that all they do is change the these and the thous and the arts and all the ETHs at the end of words that... Uh, the Elizabethan-style Shakespearean English of the King James. Um, And they do that, that's true, but that's not all they do. And I think that's disingenuous to make that claim, as if these changes are just kind of updated English wording. Uh, No, they're really not. In that 2% difference between the modern versions and the King James, we have to state And we'll get into whether you agree with this or not. I'm going to tell you why I don't agree with it, but let me just state what has happened. There's 20 complete verses missing out of the NIV, for instance, compared to the King James. That's in the New Testament alone. 20 complete verses are gone. Okay, now... You're going to have to justify why they're gone and should they be gone. And I'll give you my opinion later. We'll get into those in more detail. But I'm trying to make this point that the changes in the modern versions are not simply just updated English. I'm not against that. Okay, I do agree that there are many outdated words that the King James translators uh came up with or are translated that now we don't use, and even the meanings have been changed and and i'm a I'm a big supporter of of using uh a modern version maybe as a commentary as just maybe a help like you would a dictionary or another commentary by a preacher to help you understand a passage or a word. I have a good Webster Merriam dictionary. I always keep with me, and, and, and I use my phone. I have an app on my phone and my computer, of course, so you can do word studies. You can find out what these words meant. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that the King James doesn't have some archaic old English that we don't use anymore. I, I agree it does. But the old philosophy or cliche I still think applies, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I have never seen enough evidence to throw out the King James just because of the Old English. All I do is figure out what the Old English means, and there's not that much in there. And I I don't buy the idea that the King James is that difficult to understand if you want to study and you're willing to put in the time. Back to the cosmetic aspect. The new versions, they, they, as I said, 20 missing verses, tons of words taken out or added or changed. Um, they're not just cosmetic. We'll talk about these, these changes later. Now, going on to some preliminary points. So we, one version, why all the other versions? The other versions don't just make cosmetic changes, okay? Here's a big point. These are preliminary things. We don't have the originals of any of the 66 books today. Now, if that's a shock to you, maybe you need to catch your breath, and I'll try to explain something to you. God never promised to preserve the originals. What do we mean by the originals, the autographs? These were when Moses or whoever the writers are, Moses gave us the first five books. I start with him. All the writers, I told you about 40-plus writers, um, Whenever they actually wrote on whatever material they wrote, whether it was papyrus or early paper or vellum skins, animal skins, or there's some of the Bible. We have to say at least a little was written on by the, the finger of God, the Ten Commandments, on two tablets of stone. What we're saying is God didn't promise to preserve those original pieces of material that the originals were written on. In other words, there's nowhere you can go in the world, no museum, where you can go and find the original of Isaiah or the original of Matthew, or whatever book it is, any of the books, where they're all gone. But that does not undermine the validity and accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture, because God promised to preserve His Word through the copies, not by the original, okay? I think, personally, this is just my own opinion, I have to admit, but I don't think God uh, wanted the originals to remain, because we would probably worship them in some shrine like... Uh, Roman Catholicism has done with so-called pieces of, you know, uh, the Virgin Mary's hair or John the Baptist's tooth or the splinters out of the cross of Christ. I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, being a little facetious here, but God didn't want us to have the originals to worship them, okay? And so I think God allowed the originals to go out of existence through, you know, disintegration, through wear and tear. However, we don't know where they are. Could they be somewhere? possibly, but there's no way that we could verify, I don't think at this point, that they are even the original, and so we don't need them, because God promised to preserve uh, the originals in the copies, the manuscripts, and I might interject here under this preliminary point how important that is. Um, let me give you an example of what I'm saying. Maybe this will clarify. When Jesus uh, went to Nazareth after he began his public ministry. This is in Luke 4. You'll know the story. I'm going to just paraphrase it. He went to the synagogue where he'd been raised as a boy and went into that synagogue many times. <clears throat> and one of the customs was, is when a, a, a person, a visitor came to a synagogue, maybe a person that was brand new or just had been away, they would give them the respect of letting them read from the scrolls, from the from the word of God. And then the rabbi would get up and probably speak and comment on the text of of the Old Testament. Anyway, uh, we know that uh, Jesus came into the synagogue, and the rabbi uh, called Jesus up and allowed him to read from the text. And he read from Isaiah 60. And I'm not going to take time to get into all the importance of that, but here's what I want you to Uh, see. Jesus, when he read from Isaiah 60, verse 1 and part of verse 2, he made this statement, which is just so paramount to this argument. He said, after putting down the scroll, reading a a partial part of, of Isaiah 60, I'm going to read it just from the King James. He said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, here's what I want to ask you. Do you think when Jesus was reading from a scroll, which is a copied manuscript, that the rabbis would use. Do you think when he was reading from that scroll that that was the original scroll of Isaiah, the original paper that Isaiah wrote on? Of course it wasn't. Uh, that would have been 700 plus years after Isaiah first wrote his autograph, his, the, the first inspired original. And There would be no way that even if they had the original in Jesus' day of Isaiah, they would have kept it up in a little obscure synagogue up in Nazareth, which was a little, just a a little village, a little town in the sticks. Uh, So Jesus was reading what? A copy. But he didn't say, you know, I'm not really sure whether what I'm reading could be called scripture because we don't know how it might have changed over the last 700 years. But uh, for all we can say, this is the scripture. No, With all authority in his words, he said, today, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He had no doubt that the word of God, the the prophet Isaiah, had been preserved in the copies, including the one he was reading from that day. And so for people to have this argument, well, we don't really know if we have the Bible now because we don't have the originals that is a, I think, an attack on the scriptures. I think it's satanic, at least in its origins, and it doesn't hold weight. God only promised to preserve the copies, not the originals. And that leads us to the question, well, can we find the preserved Word of God in our language today? Or any language for that matter, but our question is going to be on the English Bible. And I believe we can. So we don't have the Originals, but that shouldn't shock us. We have the preserved copies of the Word of God, which I'll get into more detail later. Now, another preliminary point. We're still on preliminary stuff here. There is a real devil that hates the Bible. I don't want you to ever forget that point. He would love more than anything else to undermine the authority of the Bible because he's no dummy. You say a lot about the devil, but he is not dumb. And as a deceiver... And as a enemy of Christ and the cross and of the Christian faith, he knows if he can undermine the Bible, we have nothing to stand on. If he can cast doubt on the scriptures, as he did with Eve in the garden, when he first said, Yea, hath God said that thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. You know, he cast enough doubt that Eve fell for it. Well, maybe God didn't mean that. Or maybe he really didn't say that. And that's how he works on the Bible. If he can get people to doubt the Bible is the final authority from God, the ultimate revelation, the standard by which all truth is to be judged. If he can get us to doubt that, even when it comes to this Bible version controversy, then he succeeded because he'll undermine the Bible's authority in your life and in mine and in our, in our thinking. Now, another point, preliminary, that I, I'm not going to give all these I put out on a handout, but I'm just going to give these. Um, do you know that what version a person uses should not be up to their preference, okay? Um, I told you that most all the modern versions have been sold and advertised by the, by the statement, they read easier than the old King James. You'll hear people say, I don't use that old King James. It's, you know, got the these and the thou's and the arts and yees and so all that. And I want a Bible I can read easier. I want one that's easier. Well, do, do you catch the, the problem with that argument? Now we have people judging God's Word by their ability to understand it or not, instead of letting God's Word judge them. Now they stand in judgment. In other words, I don't want a Bible unless I can read it. I, I, I. I want a Bible. I want this. I want that. I'm of the personal opinion that most people use easier to read versions because they're lazy. They don't want to take the time to study And and compare scripture with scripture, and so on. And so they and they and not only that, it's not just lazy. Sometimes it's just a lack of of interest. They want to pick up the Bible once every six months on the side of their bed or at a church service and in a pew in front of them or chair in front of them, and and uh, open it up and crack them. Think they can understand it? Like just like you know, putting a TV dinner in the microwave and out comes a a, you know hot ready meal to eat in a minute or two. That's not what God intended with the Bible. Uh, In fact, Paul said. To Timothy, a pastor, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He said it's it's study, it's work. And so we shouldn't let the, the whole Bible qu- uh, version question stand on my preference. Now, we all have preferences. I understand that. I believe that. I know that. People say, well, your preference is the King James, Pastor Hamilton. Well, that's true. But a preference doesn't have to just be a preference if you have good reason for that preference. And so then it becomes a conviction, right? And so my conviction stands on the authorized version uh, because of what I believe about it. Now, one more preliminary point, and we'll try to get into some main arguments, at least one here before we're done. If changing the Bible makes it easier to read the Bible, do you get this? I want you to follow my, my thinking here, then... What you have in the end is not really the Bible at all. See, with the greater and greater changes that are being made, I'm, I'm telling you, you just would be shocked. Go, here, here's what you ought to do. I, I suggest you do this as a, as a test of what I'm saying. Go to a bookstore, Christian bookstore, or you can go online now, Amazon, wherever, and, uh, and put in English Bibles. And then listen to the titles. There are, there are things like Rapper Bibles, Homeboy Bibles, there's a neutral gender Bible translation. All these are in English. They're all claiming to be the Bible. Um, Friends, what has happened is people have taken liberties to think, well, hey, since since, uh, we can change the Bible how we want to, make it like we want it to sound, well, we'll just give you any Bible and call it the Bible. But friends, remember, you're not really reading the Bible when you read those perversions. When you read those Bibles that have so... Uh, just polluted and, and corrupted the text and altered it, you might be reading something that's easier to understand, but what you're understanding is not the Bible anyway, so the whole Bible's been lost. And so we have to understand that uh, that what we have in the Bible is important, and we can't uh, just simply say, well, I can understand it easier in this version, I'm going to read this version, uh, because you may not even have the Bible that you're understanding anyway. All right, well, let me get into some, uh, some main areas. In this uh, short study that I put together a number of years ago and gave to our church people and I've put out on our website, I think it's out there, um, and it's entitled, What English Version of the Bible Should I Use? And, and I based it on uh, basically five major points, and I'm going to use those as kind of our uh, guide to get into some of these areas. Um, The first one I I want to get into today, and and it looks like I only have enough time to cover it perhaps, and that is the method of translation, the method of translation. I'm going to have to get a little deep into some of these subjects, Uh, not deep for those who know the issue. If you've studied it for some time, these will be just uh, regular terms, but for those who are listening to the podcast who may have never been confronted uh, with this issue and never done any study Some of these things are going to be new. So, for your sake, I do want to be uh, patient and take some time. Now, the method of translation is important. What I mean by that is every new version, no matter which one you pick up and use, whether it's the Authorized King James, the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, the whatever, it has either an individual or a committee of individuals or people that sit down and translate that Bible version from the original languages, or they should we would simply discount any version of the Bible that comes out that wasn't even translated from the originals. Uh, so anyway, uh, at least in the English language, I'll just make that statement. But the method that is used is very important. Now, there's two main methods, okay? And I'm going to try to be simple with this, but it's important, so I want you to get it. There's two main ways in which translators, whether an individual or a committee, translate from the original language, Hebrew and Greek, To the new language you're translating into, which which in our case is going to be English, um, there is, first of all, what's called formal equivalency, and there's also, secondly, dynamic equivalency. Now, let me explain those. Formal equivalency is the translator trying to give you, to the best of the ability of that new tongue or new language you're going into, a word-for-word crossover. In other words, However, the word was found in Hebrew in its tense, its gender, uh, so forth and so on, all the grammatical things we can say about that word and sentence structure, it's going to do all it can to put that in the exact same way in the new language that's being translated into, okay? Formal uh, word-for-word translation, okay? Formal equivalency. I'll give you an example. Uh, from the King James. If you read a King James Bible closely and you're really looking, you're going to see words in italics. That means they don't look the same as other words. And what the King James translators and and other uh, revised copies of the King James, which were updated copies, I have to tell you, what we read now as the King James is not the 1611. Uh, That doesn't bother me. It was updated. We use a 1768 version because between 1611, 1768, the English language was much in flux. It was changing. They were changing grammar and punctuation and and uh, all kinds of spelling changes and all that. And so it had to be changed. And there were some word changes too, but mostly for grammatical uh, use to make sure English grammar was being kept and clarified and for smoothness of reading and so on. So what I'm saying is, when you read the King James now, it's a 1768 update, um, but I have a 1611. You can get one. They're still available. And it's, it's very, very similar. It's hard to read. That's true because of the different spelling and the way the letters were given back then. But it's still the same. It, it has not a lot of changes at all. Uh, but back to the italics. When the translators were trying to keep English grammar and smoothness and readability they would often have to add English words that were not found in the Hebrew or the Greek because those original languages did not have those words, and to make it a smooth reading in the new language, they'd have to add words. Uh, and, but the King James at least had the integrity, I felt I felt it's a, a very uh, noble thing to do, to include uh, words in italics to clarify the sentence structure and to keep it uh, grammatically correct. But... Having said all that, that's formal equivalency, word for word. Now, that is how the King James translators translate. And we'll get into a story about their lives and how they did it in more detail in another point later. I'm just on the method of translation right now. Now, the, the other form of translation that is used often and almost primarily, predominantly in modern versions, many of them at least, not all, but many, is what's called dynamic equivalency. Now, dynamic equivalency, instead of trying to give word for word from the original language to the new language it's translating into, they seek to give you simply a thought-to-word translation. In other words, uh, they're, they're not specifically trying to, to be really uh, dedicated and in, 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 uh committed to word for word, you know, like very structured, very literal. That's a good word to use, literal, from the old language to the new language. They want to give what they think the thought is from the original language to what they think it would say in English. Now, I have to say, not all dynamic equivalency is bad, and even the King James has some parts of it in their translation that you would I guess technically be able to call it dynamic equivalency because it would be impossible always to give a literal translation of every word from the Hebrew and Greek because the English often didn't have a word that would be exact. So I understand that dynamic equivalency is necessary at times. However, when many modern versions, let me give you a good example. The NIV, the New International Version, that for many years was one of the best-selling, if not best-selling, modern version, I think it came out in 1970, I think you can see that, and it's been updated, but anyway, um, it uses more dynamic equivalency than than any of the other, what we would call more conservative, uh, modern English versions, and... Um, and and I'm not saying every verse and every passage in the NIV is wrong. There's places where it sounds very much like the King James, very much like other modern versions. But it does take more liberty with the dynamic equivalency method of translation. And I'm concerned about that. And, and I'm going to challenge you to think that thing through as well. Because if a translator is giving you what they think God meant, now sometimes they may be right. And sometimes it doesn't even change from what the more literal translation or formal equivalency translation would say. But that's still a slippery slope and a dangerous precedent. Because now then you have what the translator thinks God says. So let me, let me go a step further and tell you, you don't have a translation, you have an interpretation. Whenever someone relies too much on dynamic equivalency in a translation... You are no longer getting a translation from one original language to the new language you're designed to read from. You are getting an interpretation by the translator. Now, I could give you the greatest example of that is in these modern paraphrases, which I, I have to be honest, m- many of the conservative uh, proponents of new versions don't agree with them either, and I'm glad they don't. I heard James White and others on the program say they don't agree with some of these modern versions that are really perversions. But this is really where you go with dynamic equivalency. If you pick up uh, The Living Bible by Ken Taylor or The Message, um, uh, these are just a couple of examples. There's many of them like that now. Um, The Amplified Bible is a good example. These don't even claim to be word-for-word translations. They tell you right off that they are paraphrasing uh, the Bible. They're telling you what they think the Bible is saying. Now, what's sad about that and, and really not not so much sad as it is dangerous, is that the average person that goes into a, a bookstore or buys online or in a used bookstore or wherever they buy it, um, buys a, a copy of the Living Bible or the Message or one of these paraphrases. They think it's the Bible. They think it's the authoritative Word of God just as much as I would think the King James is or some person might think the ESV or the NASB, whatever. And what they don't realize is what they're getting is what the the translator himself thinks God was saying. And that's how they expand. A paraphrase is is an expanded translation. It adds a lot of words and meanings and it changes things to make it appear to be clearer. Now, again, to be fair, I'm not saying that every verse in a paraphrase is going to be wrong. I'm sure you could sit down with a paraphrase and find many verses that are are saying basically the same thing and I wouldn't have a problem with it then. But you'll also find some that aren't saying the same thing. Can I remind you that Jehovah's Witnesses, who whether you know anything about that group, I believe it's an unorthodox, a non-Christian group. They have their own version of the Bible. It's called the um, uh, New World Translation. Pardon me, <laughs> I had a freeze there in the brain. Uh, the New World Translation, and if you look at the New World Translation. It was the Jehovah's Witnesses, their elders, some of their leaders back in the 50s, sitting down, claiming they were using the original Hebrew and Greek, and whether they did or not, I'm not going to accuse them of. I can tell you this. What they came up with was nothing but a biased, one-sided paraphrase to support Jehovah's Witness doctrine. You know, anybody could do that. If I wanted to to write the James Hamilton version of the Bible, if I had enough time and money and, and diligence to do it, hard work ethic to do it, I can, I can go through and translate my own Bible and call it with my name or whatever. That wouldn't make it the Bible. It would just mean I made it. I made up that Bible. Uh, the, the New World Translation, for instance, uh, let me give you an example of the perversions that they have in that version because they simply translated it to support their own doctrine. Uh, in John 1, 1, one of the great deity passages or verses in the Bible that shows Jesus is God. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nearly every modern version, along with the King James that I just quoted from, says that same thing. Many of them word for word. There's no difference at all. But the New World Translation that doesn't believe Jesus as the Word, the capital W, is God, here's how they translate the end of that verse. Verse. Or, the beginning is somewhat similar, in the beginning was the word, the words were the God, and the word was a little g god a god little g. Do you believe what that does? Can you imagine that's making Jesus the word as a as a pagan as as a false god, a little g god, and that shows you what happens when dynamic equivalency becomes your your motto and your and your uh, way of translating. You just pretty much think, well, this is what I think God meant, and so why not put it in the translation that way? So I, I have a problem with that method of translation. I think all of us ought to be concerned that the Bible we use is using a formal equivalent method. Uh, let me let me just say that uh, several of the more conservative modern versions that that I would suggest using if I if and I told you I would use them as a commentary they're not my standard there's times when I uh, might look into what the new King James has said just for clarification I think there's times when the ESV has a good translation of something or the NASB could and even the NIV but but here's what I'm saying um make sure that the method of translation of the Bible you use is not depending too heavily on dynamic equivalency because then you're just going to have an interpretation and not a translation, okay? We want to make sure that, that our Bible, as God preserved it. And by the way, I think that's what preservation's about. I think that's probably a good place to bring this to a close for today. We've got a lot more to cover, so I know we're going to be into a couple of more programs at least. But let me just say, um, inspiration without preservation is useless. Okay, let me repeat that. Inspiration without preservation is useless. If God promised to preserve his word, then where is it today? If he inspired it, but we don't have the originals, then can we be confident we still have the Bible? I believe we do, and I believe that God preserved His Word through the copies, through the manuscripts. That's going to lead us to our next point next time we're together, which will be the manuscripts as the basis for these translations. The King James, the authorized version, versus the modern versions. And there is some difference, and that's where the 2% difference comes in looking at, a, at an NIV or NASB versus the authorized, and we're going to look at that. But friends, I hope this has been helpful up to this point. I know we've tried to cover a lot in just the little time we've had. And even though we went an hour, it went pretty fast. Um, I will get back with you next time. And we will continue on uh, this controversy of the King James. Remember, my purpose is only that all of us would have a greater love and confidence and appreciation for the Bible. That's all it is. I'm not, I'm not trying to stir up controversy for controversy's sake and to make people mad. I'm not trying to make enemies here. Um, I have good friends that use modern versions, and you ought not write people off just because they're using a modern version. doesn't mean they're not saved. Uh, let's love each other in, in the family of God. Uh, Jesus told us to, didn't he? That's his command. He even said, love your enemies. And even if you considered somebody your enemy that uses another version, hey, you ought to love your enemies. Jesus said so. And so this is an important uh, topic, and I'm going to come back to it again. So thank you for listening, and remember our motto has always been, at our church and, and for life, I continue to stress it at the end of each podcast, conviction for truth and compassion for people. God bless you.